0: The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Hear now God's word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, which is what we're looking at this morning, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Dear friends, these are the very words of God. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Father, this morning uh, we need you to come crashing in and do work. No man, no woman can replace your spirit. No preacher can supersede real healing. Father, I pray that our emotions would not be manipulated this morning by a man and by the words that he speaks, but I pray, O God, that we would be emotionally informed... And how we can connect with you through our emotions, through the redemption that comes by Jesus. Oh God, we've got to see how much we lack in this area. And yet we need to see the hope. And we need to see the path that Lord Jesus, you give and your word gives all throughout. So God, would you do work? Would you meet us where we are? You know where each heart and soul is, so speak, that Jesus might grow large, and that real healing might come to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to take a a poll this morning, an unofficial poll, I guess. I want you to raise your hand if you agree with this, this statement. Church can be church community, churches can be the most fake, shallow, pretentious communities where the hurting and broken feel that they must hide and suffer alone. Does anybody experience this or anybody believe this? All right, several hands. Well, I agree. Um, I really do. And it is a lie that is pervasive in the church, uh, a lie that I think is very much of the devil. Um, And it is sometimes subtle, it's sometimes not so subtle. But it states that our emotions and uh, our emotional maturity has nothing to do with our Christianity and our daily Christian lives. And, dear friends, if we believe that, and to the extent we believe that, is to the extent that we are cut off from God, it's to that extent that we are cut off from one another, and it's to that extent that we are cut off from real healing and power as offered in the gospel. Because Jesus calls us. To connect with Him and this world emotionally. Blessed are those who mourn. Mourning is, involves the emotions. It's not just intellectual. You can't mourn just by acknowledging intellectually what's going on. You have to feel it. You have to enter it emotionally. You see, Jesus came to redeem us and He came to redeem all of us, the whole person. He came to redeem us mind, body, and spirit, or emotion. Real holistic uh, redemption, real holistic um, healing is three-pronged. It's the whole person. It's not just the intellect. It's, it's not just the body. It's all of us. The spirit, the emotion. We see that with Jesus. No one modeled this better. Maybe the psalmist, definitely the psalmist did it. uh, But Jesus most certainly demonstrated and did it perfectly. In his short three-year ministry, we uh, see at least three accounts of him crying. uh, Public accounts of him crying. Uh, We see him first crying over the death of his his good friend Lazarus. He sees the crowd crying. He, he feels he's caught up in the moment emotionally, and he emotes tears. Jesus wept, so says John 35, at the reality of death. Number two, Jesus wept over the condition of His kingdom people as He came upon Jerusalem. There's no telling what all he was thinking, but certainly he was looking at the city and he was looking at the people and he knew what could be, he knew what should be. Maybe even he could see what will be. But he saw what was and he cried. He weeps over Jerusalem, we see in Luke 19. And then Hebrews 5, as the writer of Hebrews lays out uh, this rich theology that Jesus is our high priest, Jesus intercedes for his people, we see that Jesus is interceding with tears for you and me. He is empathetic with us in our suffering. And the plight that we have. Both what we, uh, both our own sin and, and sins of others. What uh, is, is heaped upon us and the brokenness of this world. Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Jesus offered these to Him who was able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverence. You see, Jesus, instead of just suppressing it all, instead of just saying, ah, it's all going to work out, which it is. And he knows that. Instead of saying, ah, I'm about to raise Lazarus, so why shed a tear? I mean, I don't want to get too involved emotionally. He weeps. (laughs) Instead of suppressing it, he weeps. Instead of getting all spiritual, he knew the end from the beginning. Instead of saying, ah, you know, it'll... All things work together for good to love I'm not going to... No, He cries. He weeps. He's caught up in the reality of this moment because He was truly human. And He shows us what it is to be human in a broken, fallen world. It is to connect emotionally and to grieve and to mourn the reality of what has happened to us. And to grieve and to mourn the reality of what we have done to others to grieve all that we lack, how far we have to go, how our life has not worked out, how it is to mourn and to grieve the reality that this world is broken. Flourishing are those that mourn, for they will be comforted. In his book, in Peter Cesaro's book, The Emotionally Healthy Church, he points to the reality that our churches are, and and we as Christians, are so emotionally stunted in our growth that we can't be a flourishing community for the world to say, wow, look at them. We can't be because we don't have the emotional capacity to take criticism or to give criticism in a godly way. He asked this question. He says, Do any of the following people remind you of someone in your church? The board member, maybe elder or deacon in our church, who never says, I was wrong, I'm sorry. Dear friends, that's a problem. <laughs> the children's church leader, or any leader who constantly is criticizing others, ah, but maybe through prayer requests or quietly behind the scenes. The high-control, small-group leader who cannot tolerate different points of view. The middle-aged father of two toddlers who's secretly addicted to pornography. The 35-year-old husband busily serving in the church, unaware of his wife's loneliness at home. Or vice versa, the wife serving the husband lonely. The worship leader who interprets any suggestion as a personal attack and personal rejection. The Sunday school teacher struggling with feelings of bitterness and resentment toward the pastor but afraid to say anything. The exemplary servant who tirelessly volunteers in four different ministries but rarely takes their own Sabbath. The people in your small group who are never transparent about their struggles or difficulties but seem to always have a deep insight. The ministry leader who motivates by guilt and by pressure, making you feel that, making you feel spiritually less if you don't come to their event or fall in line with their vision. Dear friends, we need to hear this sermon this morning. We need to hear it not only for our personal health, but we need to hear it for the health of the kingdom of God, we need to be redeemed in every way that we might be the light and salt of the world. That's the whole flow of the Beatitudes. Right after the Beatitudes, you are the salt of the earth, but only as you are impoverished of spirit and crying out to God, finding Him to be your healing. You're salt and you're light only to the extent that you are willing to mourn Your own brokenness and the brokenness of those around you. If you aren't willing to lament the condition of your neighbor and your own condition, then you are not living honestly. And you don't have a Jesus that is attractive to anybody that is living in this fallen, broken world. Our gospel cannot just be cheer up, be happy. But it's only those who mourn that really are happy. In the flourishing, blessed kind of way. So let's look at it. Let's unpack it. The first first thing I want us to see is that we have to understand that cursed are those who do not mourn. Let's kind of take it from the opposite side. Blessed are those, or flourishing are those that, um, that mourn, for they shall be comforted. But cursed are those who do not mourn. I've told this story many times. I'm sorry. I've only got one of my own stories. I mean, i I got one life, and it's what i got to preach out of. So if you've been here a long time, you've heard it. I'm sorry, but we've got a lot of visitors that haven't heard it. Um, and I'm going to try to make a different point, too. But uh, seven or eight years ago, I was sitting in a counselor's office. And really, the topic that season or that time was how can I, I don't, I have a hard time trusting people that I'm closest to. Um, It is easier for me to stand up here and give you this illustration to a bunch of people that, you know, it's easier for me to be more vulnerable here than alone with those that I'm really close to. Weird, isn't it? Well, the counselor says, Oh, that's not weird at all. And so he, t- he says, tell me your life story. And I tell him, and he stops me at the point when I was in the fourth grade, and my father put me in his lap and said, I'm leaving. I'm leaving your mom. I'm leaving this home. I'm divorcing your mom. And he said, tell me about what that felt like. I was like, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, didn't feel good. He said, have you ever... Thought about what you needed to hear? Like, no. I mean, what's the purpose? I mean, what? He said, here's what I want you to do. Um, you've probably talked to a lot of kids, a lot of people, hundreds, thousands of people in, in, you know, traumatic, that have experienced traumatic situations. I want you to just depersonalize that fourth grader and I want you to write a letter to, to that child and, and, and just, you know, think about what you think he needs to hear. And when he he just said that, I started crying. (laughs) I'm like, I have never in my life thought about that. And man, writing all that out was so cathartic. It was so healing. There was no one there to walk with me. And see, every one of us has suffered consequences of living in a broken, fallen world. And what God tells us is, feel it and lament it. Don't suppress it and think it's going to go away. Mourn with me. Because I'm mourning, so says God. I feel the brokenness of this world. I feel your sin. I feel the sins of those done to you. I'm involved in it. And healing comes not as you push it away, but as you move toward it. You see, the reason I tell you that story this morning is because I did not not feel all that because I was being stubborn. I just didn't know I should. But hear me. Ignorance doesn't save us from the effects of not mourning. Just because I didn't know how to deal with it doesn't mean that I wasn't going to be twisted and and broken in some way emotionally. You hear me? It's not that you've committed some radical sin by not getting in touch with the brokenness of your own life, what's happened to you, and what you've done to other people. But hear me. You are broken. We are all broken. We are all twisted. You may not be able to pinpoint one incident. I'd be shocked if you can't. But if you can't, that's okay. But every one of us in this room have been deprived of the world, the love, the mercy, the kindness, the provision, the healing of something. Because this world is broken and we're all part of it. We're an integral part of it. And we are called to mourn. Yet we refuse to mourn. Here's some things that we do to try to mask it. We all put on masks. We all are actors on this drama of life. Here's one thing we do. Many of us, some of us, mask our pain with perfectionism and control. That is such a a way many people deal with trauma in their life. That they're, they're so undone by what is done to them, or maybe what they have done, that they start focusing on what they can control. Maybe it's the people around them. Maybe it's their desk at work. Maybe it's their car. And you wonder why you're irritable when somebody gets in your car and throws the, you know, the, 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 um, french fries are falling on the floor and you're sitting there and you don't, know you don't you know, you're, you're holding the steering wheel and it's getting tighter. You're like, someone gets in and starts messing up your order and you don't know what's going on. It's because you are fighting for control. You have convinced yourself that I am God over this. Perfectionistic, high-control people are often promoted, admired. They're typically made elders in churches because they appear to have it all together. But it's a facade, if that's all it is. It's a facade. Many of you, kind of the Enneagram has resurfaced. It's one of the oldest personality-identifying, you know, test or structures, or resources out there. It's, it's old. It's very old. But it's being rediscovered. And, and the Enneagram is good in that it looks at your core motivation. Um, and, and it talks about what drives. It. And, and, and it really goes back to your childhood and says, okay, if, if you had these kind of wounds, if this was kind of how the brokenness of this world, not necessarily how they say it, but how I'm saying it, how the brokenness of this world hits you, then uh, this is, you know, your motivation is kind of in response to that kind of stuff. And uh, so uh, number three on the Enneagram, there are nine Enneagram numbers that you and I could be, and they we're not only one number, but we can be, uh, you know, we can have wings um, of other numbers, and, you know, it's much, more, we're much more complex than a test, but... Um, but in Enneagram 3, the achiever, here's their core motivation or this is their childhood wound. These children felt rewarded only for what they did and how well they did it. Their feelings were disconnected and ignored, only their performance and what was expected of them mattered. This harmed their ability to love themselves and others. Admiration replaced real love. Man, this is so prevalent in so many homes of high-achieving parents or those that placed all their junk on their children. I didn't... My life didn't work out, so your life is going to. You're going to do great in school. You're going to be the best athlete. You're going to be the Eagle Scout. You're going to be the most beautiful. You're going to be the prom queen. You're... I, you know, I... All of that. You're going to be in the... You're going to win the beauty... All of that. Why? Because my life didn't work out, but I'm going to live it through you. I mean... That's the perfectionistic. That's the achiever. Because something happens. Something's broken. It's not for the glory of God. And it's because of my issues, you see. And it just, man, you can work for people like that who are going to make their business, going to make you, going to make everybody around them come in line. You can have church leaders like this. And you're just a pawn. You're just kind of a chess piece on their board. And they're just trying to get to that point where they can say, Checkmate, I win. Look at me. It's destructive. We mask our pain with perfectionism and control. Secondly, we mask our pain behind humor and opportunities for affirmation. The world is our stage. You sevens, maybe us sevens, say Enneagram sevens. The childhood wound of the seven. Those children were deprived of nurturing. Or it was soon too removed. Too soon removed. They handled this lack by searching for distractions to minimize, repress the fear and pain. They decided to focus on positive options and rely on themselves to fill their desired uh, their um, desire and gain a sense of nurturance. Those of us who deflect serious situations with humor... Because we're, we're not going to feel bad stuff, so let me, you know, we got to have the next thing. we got to have the next trip. We've got to have the next exciting thing. we got to plant the next church. Ouch. Hurt me. Number three, we mask our pain behind self-pity and fear. What has happened to us maybe in our past has made us just say, the safest way I can live, the most sure thing is that bad things are going to happen, therefore I'm going to feel bad about myself and i'm not going to try anything i can't go for i can't set any high goals in my life because i might fail and i, don't, I probably will fail self pity is not the same thing as mourning hear me self pity drives us to create a community around us that will mourn for us we want to get people around us to to mourn for us because we're unwilling to mourn you see it? self pity's focused on me, not God and others. None of us can replace real emotional connection and, and feeling what's, what's happened to us in our lives and genuinely lamenting what's happened in this broken and fallen world. Dear friends, if you can't find something to lament in this day, something's wrong with you and something's wrong with us. There was a couple, an elderly couple in Raleigh have dementia. Their house burned. They died two days ago. There was a six year old child whose stepfather beat him to death with an extension cord. If you can't mourn that, If you can't mourn the poverty, mass incarceration, if you can't mourn the brokenness of this world, if you can't mourn your own sinfulness, if you can't find sin in your life that is destroying, hurting, depriving others of the love and the nurture and the concern they need, as a leader of the church, as a pastor of the church, if I can't mourn how I want to be better for you, it can be the smallest thing. This morning I'm up on the stage. I introduced myself to Lindsay. She came while we are on sabbatical. She told me I thought that she was from Vicksburg. I started telling her about where I went to seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. And she goes, no, I said Pittsburgh. <laughs> I wear hearing aids. Obviously I need to get them turned up. I hate that. I hate it. I can't I I lament that I can't wait for the day when I don't when I can hear perfectly again. I mean, it can be something small. But there's plenty big. We should lament the state of our country. We should lament the state of this world. We should there's so much. And when we don't, it's not that it goes away. It's gonna come out in some way. Here's six ways. Maybe anger and irritability. We don't know what's wrong with us. Obsessing about the loss or hurt. Obsessing too much. We just can't get beyond it. It's all we can think about. It's all we can talk about. Number three, unhealthy fear, even expectation of more loss or hurt. Overreaction of pulling away from others or becoming very dependent. You hurt me? I don't ever need a man and woman again. Or... I've got to have a man or woman. Addictive, self-harming behavior. Or apathy, numbness, low-grade depression. Cursed are those who refuse to mourn. Secondly, those who mourn will flourish. Those who are willing to open their hearts to the pains of this world, to the pain of what happened to them, are going to flourish. It was at this point, I kid you not that a good friend of mine I've told you about called me Friday afternoon, right at this point. I've told you, his name is Kirk. His wife has was just diagnosed with ovarian cancer. He's been, he's planning a church. He called me, he said, Richard, man, I just, I, thank you for picking up the phone. You could have just hit decline. I was like, all right, what's going on? He said, I just want you to know, I'm just feeling this anxiety. I'm, I'm just feeling, I'm nervous, I'm just feeling the weight And this, I'm, I'm feeling fear, and I don't know if it's because of my wife's cancer, or because of the church. I don't know, but I just feel like I've gotta talk to somebody. Now friends, I don't know, specifically, how that conversation flourished him. But I can guarantee you, if instead of calling somebody, talking through the gospel, talking, just getting, just mourning, if he did not do that, if he went to Netflix, if he went um, to alcohol or a pill, if he went to his work and just got more busy and planned another event, if he, just, if he deflected, I can guarantee you that he would not flourish emotionally. And he would not be drawn into healing. That's how to mourn. You see, mourning does at least two things. This is so hard for us Western Christians. I mean, what is poor in spirit, mourning? Come on, give me something to do. Tell me I need to feed. Just give me something tangible, God. How do you quantify poverty of spirit and mourning? But see, He's calling us into the kind of flourishing of the human being, created flourishing that doesn't depend on the world around us and our circumstances. It's a, it, it's coming into wholeness is what he's calling us into. So mourning does at least two things. It, number one, moves the weight of sadness and grief from us to God. I saw this in Rachel in um, several years ago when we went we, we moved from Olive Branch Mississippi where we had been for ten years and we were with those close friends who planted the church even I think four years before that so um, you know 14 years at least of relationships Rachel had just incredible community of friends everybody's children were in the same place I mean every you know there was deep commonality she, we lived a mile away from her mother uh, Ashley our middle daughter was about to go into her senior Senior year, she had been in the same school since like kindergarten or, you know, I mean and her jerk husband moved her to Colorado uh, and ripped her away no, and she did not punish me, but she struggled I mean, she, she was there and active, but there came a time when she was really struggling she started reading this book by Larry Crabb called Shattered Dreams and that book gave her the freedom to To just mourn. And folks, she mourned in bed for three days. And it freaked this high-control dude out. I thought, oh my God, I kept going in there. I'm fine, I'm fine, just leave me alone. She had to feel the grief of the death of what she lost. Not to live in self-pity, but so that she could move forward. She had to heal by going to God and being honest. She has much more emotional maturity than I do. And yet what happened when she finally came out? Not only were me and the girls excited, you know, uh, but there was real healing. It was still honest. It was still raw. But there was the beginnings of healing. You see, dear friends... If a dam in a river doesn't open a lock, doesn't open a door to let water through when water starts building up, it doesn't mean that the water stops building up. It'll just build up, build up, build up till it's running over and it will destroy the dam and all of that water will come through. We can't control, we can't just by pressing down or spiritualizing, we can't make the impact of being emotionally disconnected from God and others, we can't uh, control the impact of that impacting us. Chip Dodd in his book, The Voice of the Heart, says this, when we cannot feel sadness, when we cannot ache within over what we lose, we have resigned ourselves to an existence that never lets life affect us. Folks, there are many of us in this room. Oh, it feels so much easier to do that. Let's just run to this, run to that. But as a result, we can never find the healing that sadness can bring. Did you hear me? It's not camp in it and be self-pity. And It's only when you begin to feel it that real healing can take place. Because sadness is a clean cleansing feeling. It eases the burden of daily life. Tears are gifts that we give to whatever we lose. When was the last time you cried? On my sabbatical, one thing I did was I started working through many of the Psalms, and I did it very slowly. And I was struck by the emotional connectedness and emotional maturity of the psalmist. I want you to hear, just in the first six Psalms, I want you to hear the emotion. Psalm 3, 4. I cried aloud to the Lord. Now, here's how most Presbyterians, us white Presbyterians, this is how we cry out to the Lord. <laughs> That's not the picture here. I cried, I'm so glad, I've done a word study on this, I'm so glad the psalmist didn't just say I cried to the Lord. Then we would have said, oh yeah, he doesn't mean really cry. I cried aloud to the Lord. I screamed at God. Ah, oh, so good. Psalm 4, answer me when I call, O God, my righteousness. Be angry and do not sin. You have put more joy, in my... do you hear all this emotion? Chapter 5, give attention to the sound of my cry. The sound of my... I'm crying verbally, literally. I'm crying to you, God. I'm crying out. I'm, I'm, I'm whole body involved right now with my suffering, and I'm coming at you. Man, where is that? Where is that in our lives? 6.8, the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. Weeping. Weeping is not. Oh, tears going. Weeping is uncontrollable mourning. You take emotional nakedness out of the Psalms and you're left with a hollow shell. The psalmist opens his emotions to God. Being emotionally naked before God is freedom and redemption. You see, dear friends, to be open and intimate and naked before your spouse is only a shadow of what God's really calling you to. Sex and marriage is not the end. It is simply a door that allows you to experience what we've really been made for, and that's intimacy with God. Marriage is a shadow of our relationship with God, not the other way around. Do you see that? When was the last time you were emotionally naked before God? Baker's commentary on Matthew defines mourning in this way. Mourning in the second beatitude indicates a sorrow that begins in the heart, takes possession of the entire person, and is outwardly manifested. Jesus said, blessed, flourishing are those who mourn. It connects us with the lover of our soul. John 14, Jesus said this, I will ask the Father and He will give you a counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The Greek word for counselor is paraclete. Paraclete means one who hears the cry uh, or one who is called to our side. When you cry out to God, your father doesn't stand in heaven and go, oh, stop all that, you're freaking me out. (laughs) That's not spiritual maturity. You're not acting like a refined Presbyterian. You know what God does? He comes running to you. He's the one who hears the cry. He is the the, the father of the prodigal son. What did the father do when he saw his son coming? He didn't say, oh, you're going to have to work your way back into my graces. No! He lifted up his skirt. This Middle Eastern father who never showed his leg lifted up his gown and started running. Like a complete fool. Because it's so rare that a prodigal will come home. The Spirit is the paraclete. That's what Paul Paul has given us, this theology in Romans 8. Listen. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Creation is groaning. There's an emotion there. Groaning. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit is moving you to groan. Oh my goodness. Grown, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Our salvation is coming. It's coming. Groan for it. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. What is our weakness? We don't know what to do emotionally. We For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Dear friends, when we mourn, we are flourished because we get God. Well, what's mourning going to accomplish? You get God. You have intimacy. You find the love of your soul, the one that you were made for, the one that, that you're really looking for in that promotion or, or in, in, in getting married or whatever it is, that vacation, the, the healing, the getting out of pocket, whatever it is you're looking for, He is what you're really looking for. And you only get Him when you're willing to cry out, not when you're out there trying to perform to get His love, but when you say, I can't do anything, but receive it by faith. And then thirdly and finally, hope empowers. It does not eliminate the need to mourn. There's shallow Christianity our day. Oh, wait, wait, wait a minute, preacher. Paul says in Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let me tell you, absolutely, absolutely. But you and I will never know real joy until we've learned to groan and mourn as the Bible calls us into. You see, here's what the world does when somebody gets sick. Oh, it's gonna be okay. You lose your job. Oh, you're gonna find a, you're going to, probably gonna find a better one. The world gives hope that is grounded on nothing. Those are just words. Oh, it's gonna get better. It may not. I'm telling you right now, you come to Jesus this morning, your life may get worse, circumstantially. But you're gonna have Jesus. And you're gonna flourish. And that's the kind of flourishing that we're being called to. It's, it's only the one who's willing to feel the hurts and pains of this world, cry out to God, that will have the ability to truly be joyful. Because our joy is based on the reality of a risen King who is coming back to make this world new, literally, tangibly, physically, in real time. Not some myth, not some fairy tale, who's literally coming back, and you can live in light of that. That's what Paul is saying in Thessalonians. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who die or fall asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. So wait a minute, there's a way to grieve with hope? Oh, that's how we do it as Christians. Isaiah 57, you see, we have a tangible hope. Here is what the prophet Isaiah says. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. This is what he says. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to receive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. Hallelujah. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his, get this word, mourners. Creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace. To the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. I wish we had more time. Revelation 21, I love Revelation. I don't understand the majority of it, but I love Revelation because we get the end from the beginning. Here's the end. This is how your morning ends. This is why you should have freedom to be honest. This is why in worship, if you're hurting, don't sit there alone and quiet. Tell somebody, tell God. Cry out in the midst of worship. Cry out. Be honest. You don't, when somebody asks you how you're doing, you can tell them. And you can say, I need help. Why? Because Revelation 21 is your future. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And I stopped too early. And behold, I'm making all things new. Dear friends, your King is on the throne. And He is coming again. And we can work today as if that is true. And we can mourn today as if that is true. When our house burned down, we had a good friend who called us, called my wife, and she said, "I." And we're sitting there in the midst of this burned out house. If you've never been there, Betty, you've been there, your family's been there, you know that smell that just, I can still smell it. It's horrible. It's wretched. Some A friend of Rachel's called and said, I'm done crying, now what can I do? I'm, I'm mourning with you. But now, out of our tears, out of our grief, let's move forward. Dear friends, that's what Jesus is telling us today. I'm crying with you. Now let's get busy. Because this thing's going to get rebuilt one day. <laughs> so, dear friends, may we find the connection. I'm going to give you just a few very practical things what can i do in response to this sermon give yourself emotionally to jesus by crying out to him i mean loud i mean vo- verbally cry out to him you can do it this morning you can do it when you get in your car you can do it you can get out in the woods far away whatever you have whatever first step you got to do but i want you to cry out to god and say heal me and if you can't think of what to cry out to god for then you be silent until he gives you something the problem is we're so distracted with our phones and our, every, our lives get silent, get in solitude, get alone with God and shut up until He tells you what to say. That's for all of us. Second, meditate on His promises. Meditate on these Bible verses that I gave you this morning. Meditate on them. Go to Pete Cesaro's The Emotionally Healthy Church, Woman in Discipleship. He's got three books at least. Chip Dodd, The Voices of the Heart. Larry Crab Shattered Dreams. I'm sure there's a host of others. If you are struggling with an addiction, if you whatever, we have an email address in this church. Reach out to us, anonymous at downtownchurch.com. We are regularly having people coming to us and saying, I, I, I have this addiction and I need help. Dear friends, take advantage of it. Reach out to a community group leader. Reach out to an elder. Reach out to a pastor. You may be a community group leader. You may be an elder. You may be a pastor. But reach out. I'm reaching out quite often. And I need to do it more. I'm just going to ask that our elders and community group leaders, our prayer team. If yeah, y'all would just come forward, uh, if our worship team would come on, um, we're going to bring our tithes and offerings, but as we're doing that, um, I, I would just ask, if, if you want this a, a tangible opportunity to come cry out before God, if, if you want to come and even ask someone to pray that God would move you to that point. That's what these are. Or if you have something totally unrelated, um, we want to be a community that is genuinely transparent about uh, our needs and our our need to be um, joined in our grieving and our mourning and in prayer. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank You. Thank You that You don't believe the gospel that most of us live. (laughs) Thank You that You don't call us to just stuff it, And act like everything's good. But there's a path to healing. And Lord, it's a path of transparency and vulnerability. So would you bring us into that this morning, however you need to bring us into it. Pour out your Spirit that we might groan with the Spirit. Because we know that He's groaning with us. Oh God, I pray that we would lament. May we be a church that laments. I pray that we would feel what's going on around us, what's going on in us, what's going on to us, or happening to us. But, oh God, we can only do it when we see your arms open, when we see you sovereign, high, and lifted up. And when we know that you will not push us away, but there will be healing on the other side of the sadness. God, do a mighty work in us this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.